I got a little I got a little bug, you know, like I don't have a fever or nothing, nothing like that, but I just got like that little bit of a cough where I've been traveling. I've been stuck in a van, with, but van stuck in a bus with fifty people for eight days. Just odds aren't good on that, you know what I'm saying? All right, we in David. Back to David. Back to one of the craziest stories ever. Before we go there, I want to show you something. Some people had asked about it, so I'll just show you a couple of pictures real fast of Rikers Island, or Sing Sing, as it's known. Um, anyway, it's funny. We got to this point. You're taking a ride onto a bridge. There's a one-way bridge onto the island. This is a true story. We're following a... I'm in a van with all of the stuff, and we're following a... Um, GPS, a Magellan GPS, and the voice on the GPS is Maggie. And Maggie's like, take a left on whatever, take a right on whatever, take a left. And then it says, take a right, and Maggie says, take a right on Rikers Island Bridge Road, which is what we're doing. And then it says, at the first available moment, make a legal U-turn. <laughs> yeah, and that's the, that's the bridge going over to the island. Yeah, they had, they had a fence just rolled with razor wire and then about a 20-foot gap and then another fence just rolled with razor wire. Skinner took this one. It's on my Facebook. Some of y'all may have seen it. Uh-huh. There were 155 men in there. So that's the first row, and that row went way back, and they were some vicious-looking dudes. It was probably the most vicious people I've ever seen in appearance-wise anyway. A lot of Muslims in there. Uh, some of the Muslims in there gave their life to Christ. There were some crazy, crazy situations where where Muslims made decisions. There were a lot. I don't, I don't know. I don't ever count. I always bow my head and pray. I don't want to count. I don't want to know. I bow my head and pray, and I just say, God, if you, you know, I don't know. I say, if you're out there and you want to accept the forgiveness that God has extended to you, then I want you to surrender and call him Lord, just like you would anywhere else. I want you to put your hands in the air and say, I surrender. So I do it that way. That way they see that they're not raising their hand to say, yes, I will vote for that, you know, or whatever. They, it's, it's more of mean something to them. And the people around the room, the chaplains, can look and see. But in this case, it was weird, man. There were police. Like, guards are always in there, but they don't have weapons. But in this case, the ones outside the room do. The ones inside the room don't because they don't want the inmates to get it. Well, but in this case... There were about 24 guards standing around all these men, and they had vests on, and they had pistols, and they were in like a V, all their women too, all the way around the room. It was pretty crazy. So, anyway, that's where it went, and um, I'm putting up a blog very shortly, and I'll email all you guys, and I'm going to put up my notes from my journal, so you can you can see it. It was awesome. Thank you for your prayers. Uh, one quick story. Something always happens to me on youth trips. So, like, if you're afraid of craziness happening, don't go with me on a youth trip. I mean, any other trip seems to be fine, but youth trips, something always happens. Um, your brother and I about got stabbed in Ecuador. Um, and this time, I was standing in Chinatown in New York City. And I've been in New York City many, many times. been to Chinatown several times. And so the kids wanted to see it. So they all went, we all went through. I had a group with me. But China, if you've been to Chinatown in San Francisco, it's awesome. Been to Chinatown, New York, it's pretty stinking boring. So after a few minutes, I was like, okay, I'm ready to go. So we only had an hour there. I was like, I'm going to go back and wait at the bus. So I walked the blocks back to the bus, me and Joel, and um, the bus driver was still there, and some of the other kids that were with me. We get back to the bus. They all go on the bus, and I'm, it's hot on the bus. You can't idle. 
and idle your car in New York either because of pollution. If you're not moving, you have to turn it off. So he had it off. So it was getting kind of hot in there. So I stood on the sidewalk, and they had some scaffolding there where they were working on the building we were in front of. And so I'm leaning on the, under the shade, leaning on, on the scaffolding and uh, talking to a couple of guys, uh, Joel, just adults. And uh, this black guy walks up to me, huge. I'm talking, he was about... So probably about Robbie's height, but much more muscular, as if that were possible. His arms are like exploding and perfectly defined. I mean, he looked like a bodybuilder. They were so perfect. And he had veins were just busting out all over the place. Like he just, you know, loaded and gone and worked out or something. And um, so he walks up. He's listening to headphones. He's got on a white tank top and blue jean shorts and um, smoking a cigarette. And he walks up to me and he says... Let me ask you a question. Of all the people there, me, of course. Let me ask you a question. And I said, okay, if I can ask you a question. It's the middle of the afternoon. I didn't feel threatened. I said, yeah, if I can ask you a question. He goes, what does sojourn mean? He goes, it's a word in the Bible. I was like, there's a lot of words in the Bible, you know? And I, and I kind of giggled, but he didn't laugh. And then I realized, okay, I see how this is going to go. I said, I said, okay, sojourn is somebody who wanders in a, in a foreign land. A wanderer in a foreign land. He's like, yes, you know, like I just freak, you know, I just came up with the solution to AIDS, man. He's jumping up and down. He gives me five. And then I, then I realized, okay, this guy's a little bit out of it. Um, but he's huge, man. I mean, huge, much taller, much stronger, very, very drawn face. He was probably in his sixties. I mean, uh, excuse me, his fifties, maybe forties. And, uh, he, uh, and then he says, he's looking at me. I said, okay, well, let me give you, let me ask you my question. He's like, okay. And I said, what does atonement mean? I said, that's a word that's in the Bible, too. And he's like, atonement, 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 atonement. Now, I know that's a heavy word anyway, but I was, you know, I was just trying to get it in there. Atonement, atonement, and uh, atonement. And then his cigarette goes out, he throws it down, lights another atonement, atonement. And he starts getting mad. And then I started realizing that he was a little bit high or he was on something. And so I said, uh. I try to cool things down. I say, hey, man, what's your, what's your name? You know, what's your name, brother? And he does like this. He comes up to me. And he leans right in my face. He goes, what the heck does that say? Pointing right into his eye. Cuss screamed it right at me. I'm like, oh, I'm going to die. And uh, on his eye, tattooed right here is the word rock. And I'm like, you know, he's so close I can barely see. I'm like, it says rock. And he's like, No. What does it say? You know, screaming at me. And I'm like, okay, he's on crack. He's on crack. You know, and it says, uh, it, underneath the rock, it says Brooklyn. And I'm like, it says rock Brooklyn. And he steps back, man, kicks a wall, like yells and comes right back up and leans right back. And says, no, and cusses again. What does it say? And underneath, on his eyelid, I've never seen this before. On his eyelid, on the bottom is something. But but he is black, he's very dark skin, and it's a black tattoo, and it's on a piece of skin that wrinkles constantly, so I cannot make it out. I can't see it, you know, and I'm like, oh my God, what's he going to do when I say I don't know? And, uh, you know, Joel, Joel is right here beside me, but there's a pole, because he's behind the scaffolding against the bus. I'm laying on the scaffolding, so I alone am trapped with this guy. And the bus door is over here. I can't get to it because he's right here. And uh, the bus driver realizes it's a problem. So he gets on the bus and starts the bus. Joel later tells me he had my back. I'm like, brother, you didn't have nothing, son. You would have you 
You would have cleaned up the mess. That's all you would have done. Because, I mean, that guy would have dropped me with one shot. So, so I'm freaking out a little bit now. And I tell, I tell the guy, I'm like, listen, brother, I, I can't, I just can't see. I was like, I don't see too good, which is really not true. I'm like, I, I don't see. But, but it was true. I couldn't see it too good. You know, I was like, I, I don't see. I can't see it too good. He's like, so he steps back. He's like, atonement. 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 He starts going back into the atonement thing. I said, brother, can I tell you what it means? He says, yeah, tell me what it means. And I said, uh, so I said, like, a sentence and a half, maybe. And he cuts me off, and he goes, you know what? Now, he dropped the F-bomb four or five times. And uh, he says, you know what? I'm a preacher. I was like, all right. Right then, the other kids come walking up. And I'm like, please go on the bus. Please go on the bus. And they do. They don't even stop. They go right around on the bus, except for Brian Skinner, who, if you know Brian Skinner, is always looking for the next photograph. So Brian Skinner sees me talking to this guy, thinks I'm sharing Christ with somebody, and stops over to the side behind us. He's like, I got you, man. I got you. Get to the camera. I'm like, dude, get out of the go to the bus. And the, the bus driver, the bus driver, I guess, saw him and said, come on, get on the bus. And so he gets on the bus. And then um, it's just me and Joel. And uh, Joel, who has my back. And, um, and, uh, and the guy says... Um, you know, he's a preacher, and he says, you ever heard, of, you know, The Rock, The Rock in uh, North Carolina? I'm like, oh, yeah, man, it's a great church. I have no idea. I don't know. I'm just trying to be positive. I'm like, yeah, yeah, man, it's a great church. And he says, uh, yeah, I'm a pastor there, a pastor down there, man. He goes, so, listen, I want your shirt. That's what he says. I want your shirt. And I'm wearing a Brainerd shirt, tour shirt, choir tour shirt. I'm like, man, you can't. Brother, I can't give you my shirt. I mean, we, we all have one shirt apiece, and we had to match each show, you know. And I was like, I, I, we're part of a team. This is a uniform. I mean, I can't give it to you. And he says, he backed up and he started saying some junk about the Bible. I don't remember what it was. He started rambling about the Bible somehow. And then he all of a sudden goes, I'm going to ask you one more time. I want your shirt. And I was like, brother. And I'm trying to be cool. You know, I'm laid back and I'm just looking at him talking. But this guy's ten times my size. I'm dead if he takes a swing. And uh, he's, I want your shirt. And I'm like, brother, I, I mean, dude, listen, I love you, man, but I cannot give you my shirt. And I kept trying to change the subject. But then all of a sudden... Like, if you're me and I'm leaning on the bar, he walks up right, but I thought he was going to grab me, but he didn't. He walks up and he grabs the bar and starts twisting it two different ways at the same time. And his muscles are all busting while he's doing it. He starts going, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He starts quoting the, you know, but the door is on the other side of him. So I got to get around him to get into the door of the bus. And um, he, he starts to quote the prayer, but he didn't get it all right. And so then he stands up and cusses a few times. And then he reaches back down and he does it again. Then he got it right. And I guess because that was going to be his reward now, he stood up and said, Now I'm going to ask you for the last time. I want your shirt. And I was like, Brother, listen, it's been nice talking to you. I said, I, I've enjoyed it, man. I said, I hope you have a great day. But we got to go. And I just started walking around him. I wasn't looking at him. I was like, God, please don't let me get dropped. Please don't let me get dropped. Please don't let me get hit. And I got on the bus. And as soon as I step on the bus, I hear, as soon as I step on the bus to go up, I hear Joel from the inside tell the bus driver, shut the door, shut the door, shut the door. So Joel had my back from the inside of the bus. You know what I'm but anyway, okay. End of story. Sorry, I said it was going to be quick and it wasn't. Let's... Um, Let's go to, you know, sometimes you get the chance to spread the word, and sometimes you just got to go with it. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes you get out of life. Um, let's go to uh, talk about David. We're in Second Samuel chapter 11. Probably the most famous story, uh, maybe one of the most famous stories in the Bible. You know, it's up there. It's funny that most of the Bible stories that you think of are miracles, but then everybody knows this one, too. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again. It's the unique thing about the Bible that it exposes its heroes. 
You're never going to find another religious book, I guess for lack of a better term. You're never going to find another religious book that exposes its heroes. Most of them want them to look good. You know, they're not, they're not they're never going to tell you the horrible things and the disgusting and the bad things that the heroes did. So this is, this is pretty interesting. And, uh, you know, as I've looked at this story before, some of the titles... Um, some titles. Joel was telling me that he's run across one was Don't Dare Find Yourself on Your Roof. It's a bad title. Another one was Don't Linger Longer. That's another terrible title. Neither of those are appropriate to the point of this message. So let me give you a background real fast because we didn't go over it, but we, we skipped in between it. But you can go back and read in the previous couple of chapters, chapter 8, chapter 10. Um, they talk about David and Joab, David's general together, together, conquering all these nations and all these peoples. And they are united, and they are advancing the kingdom, and they're doing what God told them to do, and they're being obedient, and they're providing themselves. God is working through them to provide this land. David is on top of the world. And I'm going to tell you something. It seems, it seems unfair, but it's really true. You've got to be careful when you're on top of the world. Because that's usually when you got the farthest to fall. You know, that's kind of a cliche statement, but it's really true. you got to watch out. When things are all going well for you, you got to be a little bit careful. I'm not trying to say God doesn't want good for you. But I am saying this, that, that, that Jesus said in our time period, Jesus said the world will hate you because of me. And yet he said, go into all the world and make disciples. So if you are, if nobody's hating you, if everybody's loving you and everything seems to be going well, you need to maybe stop and think something's not quite right here. I know that seems crazy. That seems opposite of the way we think. We think when things aren't working out, something's not right. But you really got to think there's some truth to the other side of it. So look at 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. It says, in the spring of the year, that king, when kings go out to battle, notice you could underline when kings go. David is a king. And, and basically what that is, real quick, is that it's very hard. You know, there was some civility, if that's the right word, to uh, war back then at least, in the sense that it was very difficult to drag horses and everything else through chariots, through marshland and all that stuff. So in the wintertime, a lot of times they would stop the fighting. And then when they could get... You know, and plus in the winter, there's nothing growing. They ate off the land, you know. So if the land was dead, there's nothing to eat. They would stop fighting until there was stuff. And that's not that old. I mean, you know the term siesta? All of you know the term siesta. You know where it came from? It was a, uh, when the Mexican people would battle, they would always have a time during war where they stopped and rested. And every, every army they fought honored that siesta time and would let them have it. So it's not unusual until Texas came along and waited till they were asleep and smoked them. But that's a whole other story. Um, so in the spring of the year, when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab. And, and that's not unusual. And his servants with him and all Israel. So everybody goes. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabah. But here's the problem. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now, it, it's intentionally pointing out to you that when kings go, David remained. So this sentence right here really is the key to the whole entire mess. You don't have to go any farther than the first sentence in this story to understand where the problem is. Here's the problem. When kings go, David remained. David should. It's not, it's not about idleness. It's not about boredom. It's about responsibility. David had a responsibility. He was not where he was supposed to be. And as a result, things happened. And I'm going to tell you right now, just to throw it to you right in the front, 
when you're dealing with these things, and I'm going to talk about lust and porn and some of that stuff, but when you're dealing with these things, the biggest problem is not how many walls you can build to protect you from it, although those are good. It's not that. It's are you where you're supposed, are you supposed to be standing in front of a wall? Or are you supposed to be somewhere else doing something else? If you were somewhere else doing something else, then you would not struggle as like, like, like you do. I'm not saying it go away, but I'm just saying you would not struggle like you do. I can guarantee it. Some say that Alexander the Great died because he had nothing left to conquer. That's not true, but some say that. that he conquered the whole world. He died of boredom. And apathy and laziness has its place in all of this. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. Now, yeah, yeah when, he got, when he dusted the potato chips off his stomach and sat up and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that's his house, that he saw from the roof... A woman bathing. Now, there should be a period right there. Should be a period. That'd be fine. There should be a period. Give you a great example. This trip I was just on, we were driving through uh, Brooklyn in a very nice neighborhood for Brooklyn. You know, it wasn't bad. It was classy, kind of little, like what you might see on TV type neighborhoods. And uh, there's people walking around. It's about two o'clock in the afternoon. There's people walking everywhere. It's not packed out because we're not in downtown. And we're at a stop, and all of a sudden, here goes this lady walking across the stoplight. She's got on a pair of blue jeans and no top, just walking. And passing by people, just going on. And she went across the street, across the other side, and just keeps right on going. And Brian's like, did you see her? I'm like, Brian, shut up, man. There's kids on the, you know. But a lot of people did see, you know, and I'm sitting there thinking, good. And I've been in New York. I've never seen anything like that. So that's not necessarily typical. But. I was just like, are you kidding? But it should have stopped right there. See, that's it. Period. End. You know, whoa. I swear it should have ended. Look what happens. He makes an observation. That sounds really, it sounds really silly, but that's really what he's doing. We shouldn't know if she was beautiful. We should have no idea. There was a woman bathing, and then the rest of the story goes to something else. But no, she was beautiful. There's a word for that. What is it? When you, when you look on something and determine that it's beautiful, it's hard to see up there, but it's desire. You begin to desire something. Let me give you a definition. Here's a Webster definition of desire. It's a fairly big one, but I'm going to go through it quick. But listen to just some of the words included. An emotion or excitement of the mind directed to the attainment or possession of an object from which pleasure sensual, intellectual, or spiritual is expected. A passion excited by the love of an object. Notice it keeps using the term object. Make you feel real good about pornography, won't it, won't it, women? Or uneasiness at the want of it. Or directed to its attainment or possession. Notice, too, that desire never ends without possession of it. So if you are desiring a woman, your desire is never going to be satisfied until you possess it. If you get to this point, desire is a wish to possess some gratification or source of happiness, which is supposed to be obtainable. Let me read that again, because this is the best part. Desire is a wish to possess something, to possess some gratification or source of happiness, which is supposed to be obtainable. In other words, you believe when you possess this, you'll be satisfied. You believe whatever this is that you, when it becomes desire, it means when I possess this, what in me, there's something in me that will be satisfied. A wish may exist for something that is or is not attainable, 
But desire, when directed solely to sensual enjoyment, listen, differs little from the definition of appetite. How about that? When directed at sensual enjoyment, it's, the definition is almost the same as appetite. Now, what's something about your appetite? Let's talk about that just a minute. What's something about your appetite? Give me a definition. I'm not a definition, but just give me some things about appetite. It satisfies for a short period of time. You get hungry, you go eat. But what happens after that? You get hungry again. You want more. What? It's persuasive. It may make you think you want something that's not good for you. What? Yeah, if you eat what's truly good for you, you will be satisfied. Um, sometimes appetite can drive you crazy. Sometimes appetite can make you think things that are not correct. Sometimes appetite can destroy you physically. Okay? So, that's an interesting definition. Here, here's a good use of the word desire. You guys all know it. I've quoted it a million times. Ephesians 2 says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience. Watch it. On whom we all once lived in the passions, ESV says, of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath. So carrying out your desires makes you children of wrath, in this case, your own personal desires. Let me show you its first appearance. You don't have to go there. Just listen because you already know the story. Guess when it is. Guess when the first appearance of the word desire is in the Bible. Huh? Genesis 3. Yeah. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, saw that it was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be, was to be desired to make one wise, she took from the fruit and ate it and then gave it to her husband and ate it. And what did it do? It destroyed the relationship that man had with God. It destroyed her family. You realize her children? What happened to her children? Her first two children, what happened? One killed the other one. The world's first murder came as a result of that. Cain killed Abel. It became that desire, giving in to that desire, not only destroyed their relationship with God, but it cursed her family. I'm going to tell you something. We're still under that curse until we accept Christ and we're broken from it. But even at that, David, you're going to see, it carries the same curse with David. It's not eating an apple. It's that desire, that caving into desire. Same word in Hebrew. Ta'ava is the same word used for covetousness. Thou shalt not covet. You could say, thou shalt not desire. You know? That's weird, because we don't think desire is a bad word. We just think it's in bad context. But technically, you just shouldn't do it. Shouldn't you be satisfied with everything God's given you? If you're satisfied with everything God gave you, you won't desire anything. Now, there's passion. That's good. There are contexts that maybe the English word desire would apply. You know, a woman should desire her husband in the English context. A man should desire his wife in the English word context. Listen to how God breaks down this situation. This is a great verse. You need to have it marked. Just put it, put it in the, out there. You got Genesis 3, what was it? 3, 6, where she eats the apple. Then her children, Genesis 4, 7, it says, God tells Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, listen to me, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. You know, sin desires you. It's pretty freaky. 
James 1, make another note out in your sideline there. James 1, 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is, listen, lured and enticed by what? His own desire. That's right. Then, listen, that's not the end. That's the problem. See, that's not the end. Then desire when it's conceived, see, remember that definition? Desire never ends until you obtain what you think is going to make you happy. Well, that's what conceived means. Desire, when it's conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Can't come up with a lot of good reasons for desire. Okay, look at verse 2 of Second Samuel 11. I like the way it starts out. It happened. <laughs> it happened. Late one afternoon, when David, which we've already got a problem. He, you know, I've heard other people say that. Don't sleep in. You know, okay, whatever. Let, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. Now, I'm back to the word couch. Let me stop on it this time for just a quick minute. That word couch is literally, you know, a bed or whatever. But it's also a euphemism. Get this. It's also a Hebrew. That word in Hebrew there's a, is used in a euphemism for sex a lot, which is weird. Also, it is, I looked, I bet I looked at that word, I don't know how many different places, and it's never where I've seen used in a good context. It seems like every time that word's brought out, it's in some kind of bad situation. So, and he was walking on the roof of the king's house, and he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Now, keep in mind, this woman knew what she was doing. I'm, I'm, I'm going to stand on that. I believe for a fact she knew what she was doing. We're not going to let her off the hook because it was not customary for Hebrew women to be naked in public. They didn't do that. Hebrew women were very conservative. It was not customary whatsoever for them to be naked in public, much less on a roof of a house when she knows for a fact that she lives right beside the king's place. There's no way you're going to convince me that she's just taking a shower where showers are normally taken. And David happened to stumble on. Now, I'm not getting David off the hook at all. I'm just saying, let's not yank her off the hook either. That was no, nothing about what she was doing that was customary. Remember, where's her husband? Do you know? At war, right? How long has he been gone? I don't know. Could have been a long time. David was supposed to be incredibly handsome. And he's a king. And he's powerful. And she knows she, I bet you money she knows she's pretty, man. Some of these women that are gorgeous, they know they're pretty. I guarantee you she knew exactly what she was doing. And here comes the pornography in it, if you ask me. You know, a lot of people say pornography don't hurt. It's, a, you know, it's private. It's victimless crime. You know, all these things. And I'll tell you something right now. I'm not going to ask anybody to raise their hand, but I can guarantee you, I can just about guarantee you it's something that most, if not every man, has struggled with. And probably a lot of women, too. It shocked me to find out years ago how many women actually struggle with it. I'll give you a couple of stats. I'm going to put them up here. You won't be able to see them probably, but I'm going to, I'll read them to you. Oh, yeah, you can see them. Here it goes. Let me look on this one because it's easier to see. Ninety percent of children ages 8 to 16 have viewed porn. The largest consumers of pornography are 12 to 17-year-old boys, right? Well, hey, you've got to be 18 to look at it, right? Really? Porn sites comprise 12% of the Internet. 25% of search engine requests are for porn. 50, 50, 50% of pastors regularly look at porn. 38% of adults say porn is morally acceptable. 
38%, we're approaching half of adults in the world say it's okay. 10 to 14 billion is spent on porn annually, the same amount the U.S. government spends on foreign aid. One in six women struggles with porn. Every, listen to this, every second, 2,258 people will view pornography, and every minute, $184,500 is spent on porn. And this says 70% of men aged 18 to 24 visit porn sites in a typical month. 40 million Americans are regular visitors to porn sites. The reason you may have some slight differences there is because I... Trying to be careful how I found these statistics. I'm not going to Google and searching stats on pornography. You know, that's not a smart idea. So, it's a problem. You know, it's a problem. And it's incredibly destructive. Sarah gave me this. I don't have time to read it, but you guys can look it up. Dana Gresh, D-A-N-N-A-H-G-R-E-S-H, did an article on a book that's out called Fifty Shades of Grey. Some of y'all may know about it. It's apparently even popular among... Some church people, because I guess they feel like since there's no pictures, it's okay. Uh, but it's erotic literature, and she writes a great blog on it, um, talking about how erotic literature is damaging. But I want to tell you this one little thing she says. Biopsychologists and others are studying the effects of lust, pornography, and erotica on the brain and the body. They're finding that the Bible was, in fact, right. <laughs> Imagine that. Over time... Listen, over time, your body becomes conditioned to self-stimulation and gratification. It's not just a preference. It's physiological. The lust cuts a literal pathway into your brain tissue like, that's kind of like a rut. A rut you better be prepared to get stuck in. While at first, a little bit of erotica might give you a taste for your spouse... Over time, that rut reminds you how you are at self-stimulation and how powerful your imagination can be. You'll become less interested in real sex with your husband or wife. And it says both Self Magazine and The New Yorker ran articles on this phenomenon. They both suggested that if you want to have a great sex life with your partner, you better push pause on porn. And it's creating the idea that you know, you'll, you'll, you'll begin to depend on yourself for satisfaction rather than somebody else. It'll happen. Um, you all ever read Every Man's Battle or Every Woman's Battle? It's a great book. Highly recommend those. Uh, I mean, pick those up. Those are really, really good in dealing with that. But let's move on. Where was David's wife? Real question, David, is, the real question to ask me is where, which wife? <laughs> you know? And here's the problem. Is that what you were going to say? Which wife? You think multiple wives is a problem? You understand what's going on? He's looking for another one. Because having two wives will not satisfy you. Having three wives will not satisfy Guys, and I, this applies to women, but it tends to lean more to guys. And we can talk about women, too. If you had David Beckham, you'd get bored. I mean, I'm just saying. When, guys, you have a supermodel at some point in time. If that's why you have her, you will be bored with her. Having what you think and what you desire and you think will satisfy your desire will only make you desire more. And that's why he has wives after wives. That's why people who are addicted to porn get one magazine and then another and then another. That's why back in the day they have stacks under the bed or whatever. Now you got websites, sites, plural, 
It's not good enough to look at one site and 50 women on this site. You got to go to another site and look at 100 over here and then 200 over there and 500. Where does it stop? It doesn't stop because it's never enough. That's the point. It's a vicious circle. It, listen, guys, it is just like drugs. Cocaine does you the same way. Any drug does you. You do the first line, it's amazing. But it starts to go away. Immediately, the next thing on your mind is the next line. And then the next line, the next line, the next line, the next line. It's, the same. it's all the same. It's, that's the problem with desire. It, don't, it doesn't satisfy anything. It makes you want more. So David has all these wives. Hey, listen, you think I'm wrong? Pick a rock star. Or pick a rapper. I don't know, whatever kind of music you're into. Pick some kind of superstar and look at their life. I think of my time period, I think of these 80s hair bands and stuff. They had all these hot biker women and strippers and things around them all the time. But it wasn't never enough. You look at these guys now, they're beat up, old, ugly, and lonely. You know what I mean? One of them, one of them Brett Michaels from Poisons, had his own rock of love, trying to find true love. You know, whatever. He's had so many women, now he doesn't know what it's supposed to be like. The fact is that desire will always lead to greater desire. Desire will always lead to greater desire. So let's pick up the speed. We're only getting through a couple of verses, so don't think, oh my gosh, we're never going to make it. Um, I want to point this out to you, though. Hold your finger and go to Deuteronomy 17. I know we're running out of time, but I want to finish this real quick. Go to Deuteronomy 17. Then I'm going to look at verse 14. Rule, three rules for being a king. This is before they come into the promised land. Moses is telling them, here's three rules for when you have a king. When, and actually, this is Moses speaking on behalf of God. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. It's funny. God knew they were going to do this to begin with. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. Interesting. They chose Saul. Nope. So God chose David. One from among your brothers shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Here's the rules. Only number one, he must not acquire many horses for himself. David did not do this or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way. Number two, you shall what? Not acquire many wives, lest what? Your heart be turned away. His son, Solomon, would experience this on the highest level possible. Nor, number three, nor shall he acquire for himself silver and gold. Doesn't mean that he couldn't have horses. Doesn't mean he couldn't have silver and gold. It means he couldn't go conquer nations for the purpose of obtaining it. If God blessed him with it, fine. But in the case of women, he takes women. Listen to me. Watching it, when you look at it, when you look at it, it'll always create desire. And desire will always lead to action. Always. Some form of action is always going to lead to action, especially if power is involved. Think about, in a modern-day terminology, the, the famous cliche is the, the guy at the office and his secretary. Right? The powerful office man and the secretary. And David sent and acquired about the woman. See, here we go. Leads to action. And one said, is this not Bathsheba? The daughter of Eliam. Now, if it stopped there, we'd be fine. But watch what this guy says. The wife of Uriah the Hittite. Why is he pointing out the wife of? They never say that. Nowhere else in the Bible does it say that. It always says she's the daughter of or he's the son of. And that's it. In this case, it says the wife of Uriah. He's trying to point. He said, David, I know what you're thinking. You better forget it. Also, make a note. The daughter of. Listen to me, guys. This is something you, you really got to get in your head and it's hard to do. It's much easier when you have a child. Every 
woman is somebody's daughter. Every woman is somebody's daughter. Not to mention the fact that every woman was created by God. And you're responsible to God to how you handle them. I am too. I, I mean, listen, I'm not blind. I'll be, I'll be totally transparent with you. I'm not a fool. I've struggled with this in my past. Sometimes I still have to put blocks up on the TV. I got a block on my TV now. I got a block on my phone. Listen, at this point in time, we're, we're pretty much done here, but at this point in time, David's already sinned, right? How do we know? Matthew, Matthew 5, 27, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He's already done it. But now it becomes action, verse 4. So David sent messengers and took, took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she'd been purifying herself from uncleanliness. Um, basically, the end of the menstrual period, she, it was ritualistic. They had to clean, women had to clean themselves. Well... Why was she doing that on the porch? Some commentaries, and I agree, think that she was doing it to imply I'm available. I'm, I'm clean, my time is up, and I'm available. I think, she was, I think she was advertising. She was definitely doing it publicly either way, which was totally wrong. So let's not pull her off the hook. Romans fourteen thirteen says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another, but rather decide not to put a stumbling block. Ladies, listen to me very carefully. Don't beat men up for pornography if you walk around showing it all. I'm just being, I'm just telling you the truth. I think women should look beautiful, and I think they should look safe. I'm not saying you've got to you know, wear a cover over your face and your head, but I'm just saying I hear a lot of, especially teenage girls, beat up, their, beat up these boys for the things they say and look and do, and they're running around showing everything they got. Don't put a stumbling block in front of somebody. Don't do that. Understand that the man's going to stumble. Verse 5, and we're done. And the woman conceived, and she told David, I'm pregnant. Look how fast the party is over. Look how fast the party is over. Hebrews eleven twenty five talks about Moses refusing to be called a son of Pharaoh and choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. That's the shame of it all. It's great for a minute, but buddy, when it's so... And any of you guys in here that have wrestled with porn, you can testify to it. The moment that you're away from it, if you've been around it, the moment you're away from it, guilt will rip you to pieces. Why? Because it's fleeting. It runs away. It's always running away from you. It's over that moment. David has problems. David has, doesn't take the time to talk himself out of it. He just goes. David should have been somewhere else doing something. Hey, listen to me. If you commit to memorizing the book of John in the next month, you will not have time for pornography. I promise you. Promise. I'm just saying, but the problem is pornography is too big an option to have out there and memorizing the book of John is too hard. No, it's not. I'm just saying, if that's the things you have to do. David should have been fighting a war, not sitting on his couch thinking, what am I going to do with my time? I'm just going to rest. I'm tired. I'm wore out. I'm just going to rest. shouldn't happen. He's overpowered by his imagination. That's the worst, guys, when you let your imagination start running wild and you think, man, this girl... You know what I'm saying. You just start thinking about women and you're not looking at them anymore as a woman. You're looking at them as an object. He has no counsel in his life. He doesn't have anybody standing there saying, David, what are you thinking, dummy? No accountability that says, David, I'll walk with you and keep you in line and keep you straight. 
these guys who wrote Every Man's Battle, Craig Gross and Mike Foster, they said, if you want to live a life that honors God, then start pleasing Him and stop pleasing yourself. I love that. I've got that printed out and hung on my refrigerator. If you want to live a life that honors God, then start, start pleasing Him and stop pleasing yourself. Remember that David is a man after God's own heart. Remember that God has made unconditional covenants with David. And yet, here we are in this situation. So how do you beat it? How do you beat it? First of all, be where you belong. We can say that. But that's kind of a shallow answer. The answer to beating it, listen to me, write it down, and we're going to talk about it next week. Here's how you beat it. I'm going to let you go read it, and then if you want to discuss it, come back next week. Psalms 119, 9 through 27. Psalm 119, 9 through 27. Read that next week. We're going to study it. That's how you beat desire and lust and pornography.